Let's pray. Father, we turn to our Bibles. Uh, It is with joy that we have gathered on this beautiful Sunday morning, that we are gathered around the live stream venues. Father, would you use this time of singing and praying and studying the word together to strengthen your church? We need encouraged. We need strengthened. May you do that and accomplish that through the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the word of God today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I wonder if you uh, have heard the, the story about the young bride who, after she was married, wanted to fix a very, very special meal for her husband, whose mother was an outstanding cook. Some of you young women, young brides can think back to that. Wanting to uh, just please her husband and knowing that his mother was an outstanding cook. So she had a favorite family meal that she wanted to fix, and that was a ham dinner. And so she called her mother to just walk through it all and and to be reminded of how her mom fixed that meal. And they were talking about how to prepare the ham. And her mom said, well, you know, you get your roaster pan out and uh, told her uh, how many pounds of ham her how long and what temperature in the oven. And she said, but before you put it in the pan, I always cut off the end of the ham and set that aside. And then you roast it. So the girl did exactly what her mother said. She was puzzled about what to do with that piece of extra ham. And later they were at a family gathering and she said to her mother, she said, now, now my meal turned out just the way you said, mom. She said, but why did you tell me to cut off the end of the ham? She said, you know, I don't know. My mother always did that. Grandma's right over there. Let's go ask her. So they went to their, to, to the young bride's grandmother and she said, Grandma, why did you always cut off the end of the ham and teach my mom to cut off the ham? And I fixed it that way the other day. She said, you know, when your, when your pap and I got married, I didn't have a pan big enough to fit a whole ham. So I always cut off the end of the ham. Which leads us to our question of the day, which is, why do we do what we do? Uh, So much of church world is laced with tradition. I invite you to turn to Acts chapter 2 because we are in a series in the book of Acts, which is uh, uh, the overriding title of the series is The Unstoppable Gospel. And I want you to see how the gospel of Jesus Christ in the first century is going to spread around the world through the preaching of the apostles and the disciples of Jesus. And we're just now at the end of chapter 2. And one of the things that we want to do as we as we walk through the book of Acts in this sermon series, is we want to look at and scrutinize how and what they did. And we want to ask the question here for just a few weeks, specifically, why are they doing that? Why do we do what we do? And is it reflective of the first century church? I think that that's a good foundation upon which to build our church. And many of you have been around church world for a long time, and you know the established traditions that we have in church. In fact, even as I look around, most of us have even found it a traditional thing to sit where we sit in the room. And we basically do the same thing week in and week out. Hopefully it has significant meaning, and it is encouraging and builds up the body of Christ. But I just think it's valuable to ask ourselves every once in a while, well, why are we doing this? Why do we do this? 
Well, one of the reasons that we do what we do is because that's what they did after some fashion in the early church. Remember, we're reading history in the book of Acts, and it is not a theology text, although it is laced with theology. Um, so as we turn to our text today, at the end of Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost that we looked at yet last Sunday, he brings this message to a conclusion, and there is a great movement that takes place, and in one day, at least 3,000 people were added to the church. I want to take a look at that, and I want to react to something that Peter says at the conclusion of his message, and I wanted to challenge us to ask ourselves, why do we do what we do, namely in baptism? Why do we baptize the way we baptize? Let's look at the text. Let's just pick it up. We're interrupting the sermon. It's actually Peter bringing the sermon to a conclusion. Now, everything that he taught in this passage is not recorded here because it tells us, it's going to tell us, you'll see, and remind us that they they exhorted and went on evidently asking and answering questions and continued their teaching under the direction of the Holy Spirit, uh, Luke the historian recorded this amount of this message. Let's see how it ends. It was must have been just a, a most encouraging day for the church in Jerusalem. Fledgling, one day old, really. One day old. Let's begin with verse 36. Peter is preaching and he says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So he's been emphasizing the doctrine of the resurrection and a couple times he reaches out and pokes them in the eye for their accountability and knowing that they must be right with Christ. Now when they heard this, they were, verse 37, cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? They understood now who Jesus was. They understood that just weeks before as they screamed out for Barabbas, how devastating that really was and that they had crucified the Messiah. Now they were doing exactly what God had orchestrated in his sovereign oversight. Now they're cut to the heart. The preaching of the word, the Holy Spirit, sensitive hearts, And Peter said to them, verse 38, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children. Okay, that's Israel and the next generation. And for all who are far off, that's the Gentiles globally. And in Acts, we're going to see the gospel spread to the known world of the day outside of Jerusalem. But at this point, it's only the Jews, only in Jerusalem, only in Israel is where the gospel is. And for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God God calls to himself, a statement of the sovereignty of God involved in salvation. God opens blind eyes. Only God can tenderize stony hearts. He calls people now. The call is out there to the whole world to be saved. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Verse 41, so those who received his word were baptized. 
And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And so that day comes to a conclusion with a huge baptismal, baptism service. And I take it that the disciples and even other disciples, maybe several dozens of them in the many pools that were there, um, baptized these who had believed. But notice in the message that Peter says something that has caused a question about baptism ever since. He says, when they say, what shall we do? Peter says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of sin. So in the progression, if you're turning to the notes, we see in verse 36 that Christ is preached. Christ and the resurrection are preached. The conviction overwhelming the congregation is great. They're filled with conviction. And here in verse 38, Peter is clear with his words. He says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And we see that they were indeed baptized, 3,000 of them, and the church grows in a great step forward on the first day of its existence. Begs the question, though, doesn't it? Was Peter teaching a baptismal regeneration? And that means that to complete the formula of salvation, you add to the faith the the participation in water baptism so that you can be saved. That is, that baptism is a necessary step in the formula of salvation. So is salvation really a result of faith in Jesus Christ plus water baptism? And how do we know based upon what Peter said? So let's let our eyes go back to the verse. It's in the notes and it's in your Bible. Verse 38, you're standing there in the audience. Peter is preaching and you cry out filled with conviction, knowing that you were guilty of crucifying the Lord and you want to now recognize that he is your Lord and Savior and he is the Savior of the world. What do I do? Peter says, first of all, to repent. Okay? That means to change your mind, confess your sin, turn towards God, and align in agreement with God's mind. Okay? You're turning away from your sin, you're turning towards God, you're acknowledging your sinfulness, and you are agreeing with God about your spiritual condition. So repent of your sin and be baptized, every one of you, In the name of Jesus Christ. So it was for all people, for the forgiveness of your sin, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Well, many of you are aware of the fact that entire denominations are built largely upon this verse. The reality is that they look at that verse and they say, okay, see, baptism really is necessary for salvation, and it creates a question in many people's minds. So how do we resolve it? Uh, Some will look into the Greek grammar and they will see that that the way the the sentence structure is is that that the repentance is for the forgiveness of sin based upon the tense of the verbs. But it's not very obvious in English. 
And you, you always kind of wonder, people can always kind of go to the Greek and make it work out the way they want it to work out, depending on what position they land on. Are they adding baptism for part of the formula of salvation, or are they saying no? Because you can look at it this way, let's use an illustration. You're at a gathering of people, maybe your home group Bible study, and somebody is parked in the driveway behind you, and you go up to them and you say, Jenk, can you move your car for me? I need to leave. Would you please get your coat and your keys and move your car? Or he says to you, let me get my coat and my keys and I'll move my car. So if you don't know anything about cars, keys, coats, and moving cars, and you're just listening to the straightforward sentence, you could say, oh, you need a coat and keys to move a car. So I would say that Peter is associating the reality of baptism with repentance. In our New Testament, when people repent and believe, they are always baptized. And I would say that he's including that as their testimony that they are taking this step of repentance Not that it is necessary for their salvation. So it's kind of a get your coat and the keys and move the car. It's repent and be baptized because that's what you would do. You wouldn't not be baptized. So how do we resolve this in our thinking? How do we come to a conclusion to think that Peter, on the first day, introducing a doctrine? So I would suggest that we look at what other passages of Scripture say. What do other passages of Scripture say? Because Scripture does not contradict itself. Accurate interpretation does not lead to contradiction of Scripture. It leads to resolution of of these conflicting thoughts. So let's turn to Peter's, another message by Peter in Acts chapter 10, and let's test Peter against himself. In another venue, at another opportunity, as Peter preaches Christ and he calls on them to be saved, does he include baptism in the formula? Because you would think that if baptism is necessary for salvation, then he would indeed include it. Okay? So let's look at Acts 10.43 and look what it says. Acts 10.43, Peter is preaching. Uh, This is to Gentiles coming out of the, uh, when he met with Cornelius. We were looking at this earlier in our spiritual gift series. But let's just um, pick it up at verse 42 as Peter is preaching. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judged of the living and the dead. Peter is talking about Jesus. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sin through his name. They go on and we'll see, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who heard the word, and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? We're going to look at this verse just in just a minute again as we look for more evidence. But what I want to point out is in verse 43 where he says that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sin through his name. There is no talk of baptism until it is the result of their salvation. They believed and then they were baptized. 
So let's just go back now to chapter 2, and before we move away from our text and look and pursue other thoughts along this line and try to clarify our minds and bring clarity to the issue, let's examine the pattern of people believing in Acts and seeing how baptism fits into that. So let's go back to chapter 2, and let's notice how verse 41 is worded. Acts 2.41. Notice that it was those who received his word. So they had already received his word. They were already making spiritual decisions. They were the ones who were baptized. We're looking for a pattern here on number two. The pattern is that they believed or they repented or they received the word and then they were baptized. Okay, let's just see the order of the, of the wording here. So those who received the word were baptized. Secondly, let's just go to Acts chapter 8. Let's just flip through the book of Acts here and go to Acts chapter 8 and look at verses 12 and 13. Philip is preaching here. This is the story of Simon the magician. And in verse 12, it says, But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized. What came first? They believed, then they were baptized. Both men and women, even Simon believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. All right, let's look up another verse in Acts as we see it unfold. Turn to page to chapter 10. We go to chapter 10, verses 44 to 48, and this is what I just read. I just read. Peter sees and acknowledges that the Holy Spirit has fallen upon Gentiles. So I take that to believe that they are God's people at that point. They are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. They have been baptized by the Spirit. There are multiple kinds of baptisms in the New Testament. And when you are baptized by the Spirit, that is the point of your salvation. That is the immersion in the Spirit of God. He saves you. He sees and acknowledges, verse 45, that the Holy Spirit was poured out even on Gentiles. Would the Holy Spirit be poured out on those who don't believe? And they were hearing them speak in tongues, and then, so the shock here of the passage really is that Jews are watching Gentiles experience the same thing they experienced on Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, and they can't believe it because they thought that the gospel came for the Jews, not for the Gentiles, and under Peter's preaching and under the movement of the Holy Spirit is becoming clear that the gospel is for all people everywhere. And after they showed evidence of being filled with the Holy Spirit, they were baptized. They were baptized. We turn a few more pages to chapter 16, and we look at verses 14 and 15. Chapter 16, verses 14 and 15, and notice that uh, this is the conversion of Lydia. And um, in verse 14, it says, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. She was a believer. She was one of God's people. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, and after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So we're trying to get insight. What does it look like? 
So it looked like they believed and were baptized. That seems to be the pattern. It's a little bit open-ended, whether the baptism was required for salvation. Let's look at one more. Let's look at 18.8. This is Paul in Corinth. And he encounters a man named Crispus. And Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, Acts 18.8, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. Okay? So a couple of observations just based on running a thread on these baptism notes during in the book of Acts, during the ministry of the apostles. Clearly, at the least, baptism is closely associated with the point of belief. You see, believe and baptize. They repented and were baptized. They believed and were baptized. But you never see baptized and believed. Faith always comes first, it appears. I want to comment on, a, on the word household that was in a couple of the passages. Because at the end of our message, we're going to just bounce off a couple of questions that come to mind in this matter of baptism for clarity and people who, uh, people read those verses and will use, so for example, Crispus right there is where we're open, the ruler of the synagogue believed in the Lord together with his entire household. Does that mean that because he believed, I would say that because together with his household, his household was present and they believed also. A father cannot bring salvation on his children. A father's faith does not save the children. We also have no idea of the ages of the children in the household. But many people who promote an infant baptism will turn to these passages and will say, surely there were children who were toddlers and even infants, and it says their whole household was baptized. You can argue that, but you cannot prove that through these passages. Okay? So I just wanted to comment on that. Well, let's continue to um, look and see what other passages teach on this topic. I recognize that for many of you, this is something that you've, uh, it's not a burning question in your mind. You're very confident in your understanding of these truths. For others, you may have a number of questions in your mind about why baptism and why the way we do it. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, for example, and these are just a sampling of many passages that we could use. But I wanted you to notice in number three, and underneath answering our question here, um, what do we see in other passages? Paul clearly separates baptism from salvation. Corinth is in chaos. Paul is writing a letter to help straighten them out. And one of the problems is, is that there is tremendous schism in the church. And that schism is sourced by the reality that some people were led to Christ by different pastors, different missionaries, and even baptized by them. And they tended to become followers of the one by whom they were baptized. We're going to see in a minute that that's part of the package of baptism. That when you are baptized in someone's name... You are a disciple of them. Well, I don't think that these, uh, the apostles and ministers that are listed here were baptizing in their own name. 
but people who were led to Christ by them were highly influenced by them, and they, li- they, they enjoyed when their guy was preaching, not the other guy. And it's like, became schismatic in the church. Look what it says. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, begin with verse 14. Back up to 12, so you understand. Well, 11, for it has been reported to me by Chloe's people. So here's how Paul got his information from Chloe's people, that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. So he hears that the church in Corinth is filled with quarrels. Not a good thing for a church. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Can't you hear their voice and their tone of voice? The ones who approach the others and say, well, you can follow Cephas if you want, but I follow Christ. So there's, there's schism in the body. Paul says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? The rhetorical is absolutely not. The rhetorical answer, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. They were saying things that weren't true. I did baptize, he says parenthetically, also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. I just can't remember. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Don't you think if baptism was part of the formula of salvation, Paul would have had to say, Christ sent me to preach the gospel and baptize for salvation. But he clearly differentiates between the two. He clearly differentiates between the preaching of the gospel and then the response of baptism. And he says, but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom, eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Saving powers through the blood of Christ on the cross of Christ by the grace of God. Number four, let's just remind ourselves that John in his great gospel never mentions baptism for salvation. But what word does John use over and over and over? Believe. Believe, believe. Look at John one twelve real quick. John one twelve. He says uh, uh, in in the first chapter that opening section that is uh, the unfolding of the Word becoming flesh. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become the children of God. No word of baptism here. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting. No word of or instruction of baptism. Same thing in John 3.36. Paul emphasized salvation by faith alone, no works. Because when you stop and think about it, if baptism entering a pool of water or even if you would argue being sprinkled with water or being poured upon by water from a pitcher, whatever mode of baptism it is that you believe should should represent baptism, Christian baptism, if you add that 
It is some kind of responsibility on the part of the individual to make sure they do that or they wouldn't be saved. I would put that in the category of works. Let's go to that familiar passage of Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. And if you don't know these verses, you need to know them. Um, in, in our New Testament, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Ephesians right there between Galatians and Philippians, 2, 8, and 9. And notice how even when we were dead in our trespasses, it was by grace you have been saved, he says. Verse 5, you've been raised up with him and seated He seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show, verse 7, the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. It sounds to me so far like it's all God. By his grace, grace, cherish, gift, not something that you can earn, not something that you can manipulate, not something that you can manage, only something that you take by faith. Look what it says. Verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Yes, we are saved unto good works, but there is no good work that brings any kind of salvitic, any kind of saving grace upon us. It just seems to me that when we compare Scripture to Scripture, that if baptism is a required element, entering the waters of baptism is a required element for salvation, that, that there is a huge void in the teaching of the New Testament at large. Clearly, clearly in the New Testament, there is no such thing as an unbaptized believer and repentance, belief, faith is clearly connected with the next response of baptism. That's interesting, isn't it? So our conclusion and the conclusion in my mind is baptism is not required for salvation. I mean, Paul, there's many passages we could turn to to reinforce that. Romans 10, 9, and 10 comes to my mind. That if you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. In all of Paul's significant work, arguing for justification and reconciliation in Romans 5, 6, and 7, and sanctification, he never argues that baptism is necessary for salvation. So I think that Peter, in his preaching at Pentecost, calls on them to repent, and then he is calling them out of Judaism, and so he wants them to enter the waters of baptism and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ to affirm publicly that they are disciples of Jesus Christ. Imagine what a radical breach this was with their tradition. There are thousands of people there. He's preaching Christ, crucified, buried, risen, and coming again. And then in a public manner, he's saying, repent of your sin, and now come over here, and let's get baptized and right in front of everybody. And what a statement of their faith being in the resurrected Christ. It's interesting. I think that's what he's doing. It's not part of the formula of salvation. So I thought we could conclude our sermon today with just 
uh, reflecting on some key questions that come to mind. In the area of baptism, and it is controversial, and in fact, in church history, they killed each other over this issue. Church history on the topic of baptism is absolutely fascinating, and it is filled with bloody stories, drownings, and so forth. So question number one, let's ask ourselves, who is to be baptized? I think the answer to that question was already seen as we threaded through Acts. Anyone who places their faith in Jesus Christ for salvation is to be baptized. Always in Acts, they were baptized They believed and were baptized. They believed and were baptized. They believed and were baptized. There is, as I've been saying, no example anywhere in our New Testament of an unbaptized believer. There is no example of an unbaptized believer. So clearly it is closely associated with our identification with Christ. Second question, why do we baptize? It is a funny practice, isn't it? I acknowledge that sometimes at at our baptismal services. Grown people, thankfully, you know, wearing clothes, getting in the water, fully dressed, in the water, getting soaking wet, dunking someone down into the water. You stop and think about it, that's just pretty weird. You know, uh, it seems that the evidence is that this was a God-ordained symbol or picture. First of all, let's recognize that we baptize, letter A, in obedience to Christ's command. Matthew 28, 19. Go ye into all the world and make disciples. There's belief. Baptizing them in the name of of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Belief came first in Matthew 28. Make disciples, lead people to Christ, convince them of the resurrection, show them that Jesus is the Messiah. They repent of their sin, they believe in Jesus, they're baptized. So one reason we baptize is out of obedience to Christ's command. Secondly, it was modeled by Christ himself, and it was practiced By the apostles, let's just review our Lord's baptism. As he enters the waters of baptism and is baptized by John the Baptist, and John 3, uh, Matthew, Matthew 3, 16, and he comes to John to be baptized, and John argues with him at first, acknowledges that He's the one that should be baptized by him. But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. John consented. Verse 16, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. Remember that phrase. And behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. It is difficult to understand why Jesus would be baptized apart from the reality that in his humanity he was setting an example for his people. Why would Jesus, of all people, be baptized? 
He had no sin to repent of. John's baptism was a baptism of repentance and acknowledgement of belief in God. When John baptized in the name of Jesus, people who were God-fearing and turning their hearts to God, later they were re-baptized in the name of Jesus. And that's where we get the idea, too, that were you baptized by John or were you baptized by Jesus? Because whoever baptizes you, if you're, you're baptized, that's who you follow. There's a strong relationship there. I think that's what happened in Corinth. But believers in Christ then were re-baptized even though they had already received John's baptism. We have example of that in the book of Acts. So why do we baptize? We baptize in obedience to Christ's command. It was modeled by Christ. We've already looked through the book of Acts And there's further evidence, though, to see that the disciples practiced it. When they preached and people believed, they baptized. Okay? So our conclusion is, is that this act of baptism and entering the waters of baptism, letter C, is an outward expression of one's allegiance to Jesus Christ. We are baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And when I am baptized in the name of the Trinity, it's, an, it's, an, it's, a, it's a statement that I belong to him and I will be al- aligned with him. I think, fourthly, that it is a memorial. We, we believe in a symbolic baptism. It is not an efficacious for grace. It doesn't bestow grace. It is symbolic. In fact, we here at Fellowship Bible Church would hold that there are, are two um, uh, practices in the church that were commanded by Christ, we call them ordinances. Okay, we, we don't call them sacraments because sacrament, by definition, is something that bestows grace. It is sacred and it bestows a grace upon the participant. So in our world, we don't use sacrament, but we will say it is an ordinance as in it was ordained and ordered by Christ. Communion, the breaking of bread, and the remembrance of the cup, and believer's baptism. Those are the two ordinances that we would hold to in the church. So when a church begins, when a church gathers, when a church identifies itself as a body of Christ, two things that should definitely go on in there is they should take communion together in remembrance of his body, broken body, and his shed blood, and they should baptize professing believers in Christ because it is a memorial to the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We'll mention this again in just a moment, but as our time wanes, let me just say, one of the reasons that we believe in immersion for baptism is because it best pictures the death, the burial, and then the resurrection of Jesus Christ and our identification with that. But even the act of baptism is a, is in a sense, a memorial. It is a memorial to that great event that we hold to for our salvation. So how do we baptize? This is a question that has caused a lot of disagreement. We're not going to camp on these points. I'll roll through them. It's not difficult to understand our view. The, the simple straight up answer is that we baptize by immersion. We go into enough water to bury down in the water to rise again up out of the water. That's called immersion. But why do we do that? 
First of all, we do it because the very meaning of the Greek word baptizo equals to dip. It means to dip or to submerge or to immerse. Now let me just, I think this is interesting enough. Let me just show you really quickly. Um, let's go to Luke chapter 16, verse 24. And let me show you how the verse is translated there. Luke chapter 16, verse 24. This is the rich man and Lazarus. This is the rich man and Lazarus story that Jesus is telling. And in verse 24, it says, he's begging, he calls out to Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. The word dip right there is baptizo. Now, interestingly enough, in in many of the other passages, uh, early on when the Bible was being translated into English, uh, the powers that be and the state religions of the day were infant sprinklers and the translators choked on creating, uh, putting into English the word dip or immerse. It would be accurate everywhere we just saw the word baptism, which is a transliteration. It is a Greek word that they just took the letters of the Greek alphabet and put English alphabet letters on them and created an English word. Baptism, baptizo, baptism. It's a new word in the English language. But if you were translating it for meaning, you would say dip, immerse, plunge. We won't take time to turn there, but in Mark 14, 20, they're eating together and he takes the bread. He's talking about Judas betraying him, I think, in that passage, and he dips it down into this stew. He didn't sprinkle stew on top of the bread. He dipped the bread down into the stew. And the word is baptizo. We also have many biblical examples to turn to. Let me rattle off just a few. The verses are there in your notes, and they might come up on the screen as well. I appreciate those guys on the back bringing the scriptures up for our assistance. But we have the example of Jesus that we just read, in, and we read it in Matthew 3.16 in Mark 1.10. It's very similar, the account of our Lord's baptism. But notice that the phrasing of the language, it is clear he came up out of the water. John the Baptist was baptizing at Anon because water was plentiful there. If you're pouring or sprinkling, you don't need plentiful water. So it's the description of what's happening. It's clear. Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, when he understands the scriptures, he sees water and he immediately wants to be baptized. He wants to identify with Jesus. And they both went down into the water and he, Philip, baptized him, the Ethiopian eunuch. And when they came up out of the water, well, they were on a chariot traveling They would have had a canteen. They could have easily uncorked the canteen and done a little sprinkling right there. They didn't. They saw water. They got out of their chariot. They went down into the water when they came up out of the water, it says. Listen, there's absolutely no example of sprinkling for baptism in the New Testament, or pouring for that matter. There is some record in historical documents in the first century church where uh, there were times when they were unable to have water to go down into. They, they did give instruction that they could pour three times in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's written documents of that kind. So evidently it was somewhat accepted in certain situations in the early church to do that. 
but there are no instances of this in our New Testament. You see, we baptize by immersion because the meaning of the word, the examples of scripture, but because it also best visualizes the believer's spiritual identity. Romans chapter 6 is the passage I often use. Talking, Talking about being baptized in the Holy Spirit here, this is not a passage that you can construe to say that it's talking about water baptism. But when you see the words that Paul uses about our identity with Christ spiritually speaking, do you not know, verse 3 of Romans 6, that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, I believe that's spirit baptism, identification through the Holy Spirit with the finished work of Christ for our salvation, we were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. That's That language that Paul uses there is nowhere else in the New Testament. It's like a new way of speaking that he introduces. And he's connecting the believer's testimony with the spiritual reality that when you are born again and declared righteous in the eyes of God by faith in Jesus Christ through his grace, God identifies you with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. When we enter the waters of baptism, that's what we are memorializing or symbolizing, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think that makes clear sense. There are many other questions, and we are about out of time Does mode of baptism really matter? Let me just click off short responses. I think it does. Not everybody holds strongly. Some churches will let you choose your mode of baptism. But I think in light of what baptism represents, that that what baptism means speaks to the mode. What baptism means speaks to the mode. What if I've been baptized as an infant by sprinkling? I would say that you need to come to Christ, accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior by grace through faith, and then be baptized. Sprinkling as an infant did not save you, and many people believe that it bestows a special grace upon the child. I personally do not see that in Scripture. And there's no instances or instruction in our New Testament of infant sprinkling or baptism. What if I was baptized by immersion, but I really don't think I was born again. I was a born again Christian at the time. If you've clarified and solidified your testimony of faith in Jesus Christ, there would be nothing wrong with you entering the waters of baptism a second time. Now that you can proclaim Christ, you should enter the waters of baptism. Is it biblical to baptize babies? The short answer is, I do not believe so, no, because there's nothing there. Then you say, why, how do they build a a practice of sprinkling babies. It is actually a fairly complicated argument, and it is based upon circumcision in the Old Testament, and it is carried over as a mark of being a covenant people under the new covenant, and they're saying that what circumcision served in the Old Testament to mark God's people with the cutting away of the foreskin on the male, they say that Males and females would receive the mark of the covenant of grace in the New Testament. 
And so it's basically defined down denominational lines. You're holding to other doctrinal viewpoints that would establish a mindset whereby you would want to argue that there is a covenant of grace that you can cover over your child. I personally do not believe that that holds up under the scrutiny of Scripture and that there is just a void of teaching in the New Testament. I don't want to offend anybody at all who holds to that view. If you're born again believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and have not been baptized, can I ask you why not? Why not? So I don't like to be in front of people. Hmm. That's not a good example, a good excuse. In our New Testament, people right there believed the apostles preaching and they were baptized in front of everybody who were going to be critical of them. It was going to cost them. Even in parts of the world today where the believers are persecuted, often it is their baptism that triggers persecution. It's when they're baptized that people know they've taken the brand of Jesus. We have done a disservice to the doctrine of baptism and to the encouragement of new believers by holding back baptism from them until we disciple them or tutor them in more deep things of the gospel. We should lead people to Christ, and when we lead them to Christ, they should profess Christ, and they should be baptized in the waters of baptism. There is no other biblical example. I want to ask one other question before we close. Are you, when you think about your salvation, depending upon your baptism, what brings security to you that your sin is forgiven? Your baptism? I would challenge you to focus on the cross the shed blood of Jesus Christ, that your faith is in the finished work of Christ on the cross and that by God's grace, his free gift, by grace, you have accepted his free gift of salvation and you have put your belief, your faith, your trust in what God did through Christ, taking your sin, putting it upon Christ, giving Christ's righteousness to you in that act of belief and being justified cleansed from our sin, then we're baptized as a testimony of our faith. I hope that's been helpful. Will you stand with me, please? Let's bow our heads together. Is your faith and trust in Christ today? Do you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Have you trusted Christ by grace, accepting his free gift? Or are you depending on the trappings of religion, the mode of baptism, Oh, just admit your sinfulness. Believe that Jesus is the Christ and you will be saved. Father, please bring clarity to these matters and help us to understand why we do what we do. And may these things be very helpful to us. Father, for any who are struggling with their understanding of these things, would you help them find clarity and biblical confidence in their understanding of these important truths? We commit now our tent services to you in the hours to come this morning. Thank you that we have that great facility and that it can be used on a weekend like this. We commit ourselves, our church, all who are sick today. Father, would you be merciful and would you bring healing to our congregation and our community? Would you remove this COVID from our state and from our country, we pray. In Jesus' name now, committing the week to you. Amen.